So we're in this little series on, um, on the short stories of Jesus. Um, and we're really focusing on the story part of the stories of Jesus. You know, um, movies is the uh, main way that a lot of us get, get stories. Um, and you know how some movies can really, I don't know, they can really get under skin and they're under your skin before you even know what it is that they're provoking or touching in you. I, um, I think of the movie, The Kids Are All Right. I think it uh, was released in 2010. It's the Ann, Ann Benning and Julianne Moore, I think. They're two moms, and they have two teenage kids. And then one of the moms, Julianne Moore, cheats on the other mom. I think with the gardener, and the family is rocked. And is, is the whole thing going to fall apart? And, and the, but then they're taking their firstborn to college, away to college. And the, it ends with them taking the firstborn to college. And, and there's, that's when the first flicker of, like, Maybe they're going to make it. Maybe the marriage is going to survive this, this blow happen. So I happened to, I, I went to see a matinee. I lived on the west side of town at the time. And I went to Quality 16 and I walked there for a matinee. I think my uh, wife at the time, Nancy, was uh, taking Grace, our, our uh, fifth child, off to a field hockey event. Grace is into field hockey. I was alone for the weekend. So I go see the movie and a by myself, and I'm walking home, and I'm walking down Wagner Road, uh, like by Wagner and Jackson, if you know the west side of Ann Arbor, and, and I'm walking down Wagner Road, and I'm, I'm just, I'm mulling over that movie, I'm thinking about that movie, why did that movie, what was it about that movie, and while I'm walking, I just, I burst into tears, and I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> Yeah, it's 2010. I, I first was a dad in 1971. It was a first year at, at University of Michigan. And then I had a fifth child in 1993. And this is 2010. And Grace is playing field hockey. And she's been talking about wanting to leave high school early to go to the American University where she had a scholarship to play field hockey. And she's about to move home. And the movie was just tugging on all that. And so I'm walking down Wagner and there's no sidewalk. It's just like zoom, zoom, zoom. And I'm, I'm crying. And I, I don't think I was dressed great or anything like that for the matinee. And a, just by happenstance, a woman pulls up like in a truck and it was loaded like with food and, and pop and things. And she, it turns out there was a homeless encampment that was down there. It was the, the now it's a mission uh, campus or something mission that was a group of homeless who were living in a in a camp down in the woods off there and she was delivering some things to the to the guys and she saw me and thought I'm in my state that I was I didn't have a home because I was sad and she's offering me pop and food and I said I'm thinking that it's so sweet and that just even touched me more and it's like whoa that was a heck of a movie I saw I saw fences Fences. Denzel Washington got robbed and Viola Davis in Fences for not, not getting an Academy Award for that. This August Wilson's famous uh, African-American playwright and Denzel Washington puts Fences into, into movie format and it's all about a, a father, uh, Denzel Washington and his son and the mother, Viola Davis, and they have a half-sister and, and the father's living a hard life because he's grown up post-war Baltimore, Jim Crow 
and, and that the hardness of his life leaks out and he's kind of hard on his son and it's a conflict between the father and the son and the poor mother's like, you know, miserable and then, boy, did that, my dad grew up with a really hard father and it was just like, oh, that movie really worked on me. Amy Jill Levine, who we're a scholar we're using for the uh, story, short stories of Jesus, she wrote a book. She's an Orthodox Jew who's also a New Testament scholar and a feminist. She's really, I really like Amy Jill Levine. And um, she says, you know, the stories of Jesus, just like any story, um, they don't have a message so much as they do things to us. Like they act on us. They, they, you know, cause us to reflect on our life and things about the story intersect with things going on in our life and it, and we're drawn into the story and we kind of indirectly face things in our lives that we might not face directly without the help of the story and that process like opens space for God. And today we're going to look at the most complex, the longest story that um, Jesus told. Uh, it starts a man has two sons. Now you've got that on your thing. You might underline uh, fields. He, he came in from the fields. I don't know what, uh, lost my thing. Um, the older brother comes in from the fields. That's, a, that's important. The, the fatted calf where they, you know, the, the father says, kill the fatted calf. You might underline that. That's that's important. But the gist of the story, if you haven't had a chance to just read it yourself or familiar with it, the, the man has two sons and the younger one asks for his inheritance and the father gives it to him and the son goes far away, distant country, spends it all. Um, it, it says in your translation with wild living, the word is more like prodigal, meaning he just, he just spent it all. It, it's like he might have had one-click Amazon and just every day he's ordering stuff from Amazon. It's not, there's no other implication for that word. Wild living implies others. But anyway, he, he spends it all. He ends up eating paws on a pig farm and he thinks, I could do better back home. So he crafts this speech, you know, Father, I'm a louse. I'm not a son. Treat me like one of your slaves. And then he goes home to his father and Father sees him in the distance and comes running to embrace him and hugs him and, and calls to the slaves immediate, kill the fatted calf, and, and a, a party presumably commences. Meanwhile, this older son, the firstborn, is out in the field and he hears the commotion back home and he's like, what's up? He asks the slave as he's coming in from the field. And, well, it's a party for your returning brother. And the older brother is like, what? And the father goes out to meet him. And the older brother, this time he's mad. Like, what's this? There's this party for this good-for-nothing son of yours who spent all his money whoring. You know, he like throws in the sexual sin thing just because, well, why not? He knew nothing about what was going on with his younger brother. But whatever, he's mad. The, the, uh, you know, I, I, I've been slaving away all these years. You've never thrown me a party. And the father says, well, everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate. Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. And the story ends there. We might say it suspends there. Because it just, it's like, well, what's next? It's the great unfinished story. 
And I think it's like, well, we're finishing the story. You know, we're in the, we're in the middle of this story. This is the story of the middle of our lives. Now, we often, the church will often read this story as an allegory. An allegory is where every figure represents something else. So in this way of reading it, the younger brother is like the party-loving redeemed sinner like us. You know, maybe like the Gentiles. And then the older brother is like the party-pooping Jewish opponents of, of Jesus. You know, like those bad Pharisees or some kind of Christians that we don't like because they're legalistic or whatever. And, and the Father is always God. It's just clear to everybody the Father is God. This is what's going on. Well, that is one take. It's a, it's a little bit self-serving, that particular inter- interpretation, right? Especially since... Like Gentile Christians like rule everything right now and you know Jews are a minority and so it's a way of kind of taking a swipe at this religious minority with this superior interpretation. But it can also be read as like a family story on its own terms. Like the f- fences is a family story or, or the kids are all right is a family story. A man had two sons. That's how it starts. So a Jewish audience would have heard that opening. A man has two sons. And immediately they would have heard strong echoes of their founding stories. The founding stories that occupy most of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, because there are so many stories about a father and the two sons, the older and the younger. So... Adam, which means human, Adam, has two sons. Cain is the older. He comes from the field to make a grain offering. So he comes from the field. That's an echo. Abel offers from the finest of his flock instead of grain. So he's offering like a fatted sheep in this case. You know, kind of like the party. Abraham has two sons. There's the younger, Isaac who gets kind of favored and since he gets the party and then there's the older Ishmael who kind of gets the shaft and there's a whole story behind that and then there's the Esau and Jacob pair because the father Isaac goes on to have two sons Esau and Jacob and he's blind and he's near death and the younger son Jacob's mother Rebecca has a scheme she favors Jacob and she uh, kills two fatted calves she's the goal of kill two fatted calves this is reminding us of this other story and two calves well that's enough for a big party and but it's to make a savory meal for um, Isaac. And she'll send Jacob in, you know, with the meal and finagle the firstborn blessing, which is like an blessing, would go to Jacob, who's the secondborn, but it really belongs to Esau, the firstborn. Meanwhile, Esau is out in the fields and he comes in. So what this story especially is in the background of a man had two sons, Luke 15. All these older, younger brother pairs in the, the founding book of uh, the Bible, the book of Genesis, are, they're all riddled with rivalry. 
It's like, what a mess the families are in, in the book of Genesis. And God is working through and he's involved in all these messy families that are just torn apart by these sibling rivalries. Um, sibling rivalry is like one of our big hang-ups, you know. Peer rivalries, rivalries with people that we're in connection with, um, it's, you know, really hard for parents to navigate. If you've had kids who are like on each other and in a rivalry, it's almost impossible to figure out how to help them with it. I, um, our first two, Jesse and Maya, had them real young, like 19 months apart. What were we thinking? And, and they, they had a lot of rivalry. We were on vacation one time, and it was a miserable vacation because one or the other would come in, and Dad, Maya did this out there, and, you know, and then Maya would go, Dad, you know, Mom, you know, Ma, Jesse did this. Finally, in desperation, I had been watching basketball, and they had the possession arrow. Instead of doing the, the jump ball, they just, you know, the home team gets the possession arrow, and then if there's a contested ball, well, it's okay, you get the ball this time, then they flip the possession arrow, and you get, I applied that. I said, we're going to just use the possession arrow, Maya, when you come in, and it's Jesse's fault, okay, it's going to be Jesse's fault, but next time, if he comes in, it's going to be your fault, we'll just do the possession arrow. I thought it was brilliant, it didn't really work, but it was, you're desperate, how do you do this? Um, we're kind of addicted to rivalry as human beings. I mean, we get off on rivalries like U of M and OSU. We get entertained by these rivalries. Uh, rivalries are like embedded in our psyche. Um, Esau and Jacob were twins in the womb. And the story goes that Esau is on his way out in the birth canal and first, and, but that Jacob, whose name means heel grasper, is literally grasping at his heel as he's, as he's coming out, like he's trying to pull Esau back in so he can be the firstborn. Um, no brother pairs, seemingly, in the Bible get along. Now, you could say the father in Jesus' story didn't exactly make it easier on the older brother. I mean, think about it. He calls the slaves to kill the fatted calf while the older brother is out in the fields. He just immediately starts the party. Forgiveness, everything, great. But he, he might have, like, called for the older brother and told him first. Um, I mean, the younger brother has spent his inheritance and he's come home. So that means he's going to be living off of what really belongs by rights to the older brother's inheritance. So his inheritance is going to shrink because the younger brother is going to have to feed off it. And besides, the younger brother left, went to a distant country, didn't, didn't, didn't text, didn't stay in connection with the family, left the older brother to care for the father in his old age and all that that entails. And so they had some things to reconcile, you know, the... But the father is so glad to see the son, he doesn't even think of the older brother. And so rivalries are just, it's complicated for families. Envy, jealousy, comparison. What joy suckers, eh? I mean, imagine your life if you didn't experience rivalry or envy or 
comparing yourself to other people. Oh, they get to do that. And in this setting, I want to be able to do that. All that stuff. You know, Jesus himself had a younger brother, James. And at this point in his life, during the period of the Gospels, um, they were at odds with each other. James, in fact, with his mother, tried to do an intervention on Jesus and take control of him because they thought he was like out of his mind. He was like, wasn't behaving well. And maybe James was jealous about all the attention that his older brother Jesus was getting. Jesus was an older brother in his own family. You know, stories speak through um, the silent characters, right? Um, Like, where is the mother in this story in Luke 15. Where's the mother? I mean, Sarah was a big player, the wife of Abraham in the Ishmael Isaac story, major figure in that story. Rebecca, mother of Esau and Jacob, was a major player in that story. But here there's no mention of the mother. You say, well, the mother died, but no, this is the story. He's just, he's, he's creating the story. Um, It's like in some families, one parent can be so powerful, like larger than life, that the other parent becomes kind of invisible. And it's like, wow, that's not, that's not fair. Or um, what about the slaves? Like the slaves are in this thing, but they're just mentioned. And how many sermons have you heard about the slaves? Um, we ignore the slaves. It's just like we ignore the fact that our national wealth was built on the back of slaves who got no cut, you know? I think my kids are uh, having a field day. <laughs> I want to I send them a text and say, just, just chill it right now. But um, um, they, they, we have a sib text and they, whatever, it's a thing. And oh, um, where was I? Um, so, you know, that part in the story where the older brother is out in the field and he says, I've been slaving for you for years. But he's saying that in the actual hearing of actual slaves. And the older brother gets an inheritance. You know, the older brother is staying in the family dwelling, which is nicer than the slaves' quarter. That just must have been so galling. For the slaves to hear the older brother say, oh, I've been slaving for you all these years. The slaves are not allowed to accumulate any wealth and no inheritance. Even though they help to generate the wealth that is part of this family that gets passed on to the, you know, to the kids. It's like, what about the slaves? Um, I think about this story. I would have thought of it like an American story of an older brother. The older brother would be like the native-born people, right? I mean, the indigenous people, the Indians. Uh, and we'd, the younger brother would be like the European latecomers from a far country, right? <laughs> who come from a far country, who throw themselves a party with the help of like the slaves they bring. I think Um, They say between 1500 and 1800, there were two and a half Europeans who came and they brought 12 and a half million slaves with them, you know, and thrown a a big party. All the wealth of Europe was really like wealth that was just taken, you know, and sent back to Europe from the indigenous people and the slaves. And and it's like, you know, that, that breeds a lot of resentment 
that kind of a family history, and it's, it's hard for us. We haven't really faced that, have we, in our story, either slavery or this other, indig- how we've treated the indigenous people. I mean, man, the stuff I learned growing up was so simplified and so, so like focused on, uh, oh, well, the slaves, the, the, the Indians just wanted to give the, we, we, got, we got the land by treaty. <laughs> by treaty, right? We will stop killing you if you give us your land. You know that was the treaty. It's like the stuff that you don't learn in uh, growing up in school. Um, yet these these older brother, younger brother rivalry stories really hit some raw nerves. Um, they have they touch some big themes because we're rivalry addicts as human beings, and we don't easily do the work to resolve our big family issues and our resentments. It takes a lot of work to deal with this stuff. Notice how there's no tidy bow on the story tying up all the loose ends. It's not an ending, it's a suspension. Um, It says at the very beginning, continuing Jesus said there's a man with two sons. Well, it had been preceded by two other stories. And it was kind of a thing in that era to tell three stories in a row, all with the same themes. The first two would be kind of formulaic to set the formula, and the third one would be complex and like, oh... And that's the way it is here. Jesus tells the story about the one sheep who you know, wanders off and the 99, the, shep- the owner goes and gets the one sheep, brings it back. So it's a simple story of lost, search, found, and party. And then the woman who loses one of her 10 coins, another simple story, lost the coin, search for the coin, find the coin, throw a party. That's the same formula for this story, except it doesn't work out so simply with human beings, does it? It's complicated. And it's, you have to do a lot of work for everyone to actually be able to enjoy this party. Have you ever been to a party, like a wedding party, where the two families that are coming together don't mix at all and they come to odds or the wedding party becomes the event for Nancy's, um, my first wife's family. I went to one of her big, it was like a big Polish wedding. I, I came from a more reserved background where the, I didn't, I never went to parties with more than 10 people growing up and I go to this big wedding party and, and a fight broke out at the, at the wedding party and I'm like, Wow! And then I heard about another wedding where afterwards there was a fight broke out. I'm like, oh, wow. It's like, how do you have fun at your party when you have all this resolved stuff you haven't dealt with? This story just leaves us hanging. Will the mother remain invisible or will she get a voice? When does she get to say to her husband, great idea having a party, honey. I wish you would have talked to me first. Maybe you got a little ahead of yourself. Maybe we should talk to the two boys together, work some things out so that everyone could then enjoy the party. Will the slaves ever get their day and have their say? Do do they get to say to that older brother, don't you dare compare situation to our situation? Do do they start like a labor movement, a protest? 
Will the older brother and the father see the light and share some inheritance with the slaves, you know, who generated the wealth for the family? Will, it, will, will they put some of the slaves in their will? You know, like rivalry, envy, jealousy. Can we face how we're all affected by these and somehow make space for God in our rivalry stories? Remember Amy Jill Levine, stories don't mean something so much as they do something. So much of our life is affected by rivalries we don't want to face. And it's scary. <laughs> like give us all, it's scary to face these things. We need help. We need like some creative God space to open up. What if God is there for the younger brother? And God is there for the older brother? And God is there for the father? Who clearly in this story is not God. <laughs> you know, he's a father. What if God is there for the father? When the kids are not getting along and father doesn't know what to do. And What if God is there for the silent mother and gives her a voice and what if God is there for the slaves to help them gain their freedom and to like move in everyone to give them a share in the inheritance, the wealth that's being generated? See, God wants everyone at the party. I mean, that's the point of the parties and that's the teleos. That's the direction. That's the aim of the good realm of God. It's a banquet feast. It's a party where everyone gets to play and everyone gets to come and everyone gets along. And so it really is a party and you can have a good time. God's good realm is like hovering near and opening up some new possibilities. So I just think about the space that we're in. Um, Emily uh, talked about the uh, parable of the um, publican and the tax collector, and um, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. The publican is the yeah right yeah get my words mixed. What Steve said, you know, and that's absolutely true. That does happen. Um, how can we let God like into this space where? What a deal. I mean, we share a space with a, a, a Christian tradition that's very different than ours, the Episcopal Church. Um, many, many of us came from like an evangelical setting where the Episcopalians were like, yeah, those Episcopalians, and that dead, dead liturgy, they sit up, they stand down, they're losing members left and right. And you know, part of the evangelical kind of like narrative is we're not like those, you know, mainline, mainline uh, traditions or whatever. We've got a synagogue. I, I noticed the effect of, of being in a worship space that was um, uh, offered to us by uh, almost immediately as I'm reading the New Testament stories and realize, oh, what if my Jewish brothers and sisters were listening on, on some of these interpretations and they've been much more careful about how we interpret the New Testament and not in a self-serving way that makes like our Jewish siblings um, look bad. You know, it's a... Uh, it's, it's a, and, and across the street, right over there in that yellow house is part of the property, there's a food pantry and, and there's, a, there's a, the Muslim social services 
joins together with the Episcopal Church and the, and the synagogue to, do, to give food to needy immigrants mainly. And like, wow, we are in like in a sacred space. And so part of, part of the kind of purpose of God in this space is for us to like deal with our rivalrous nature and like invite God into our space so that we're not as affected by all this rivalry. I just uh, end with a kind of a more personal story about this space because um, my, uh, uh, my first wife died. I, I married Julia Hutter Bailey and we had, the, um, we had the wedding reception here in this space. And um, I learned that Julia was married to Richard Bailey who died but they were married in this space. This was the original sanctuary. And at first, I'm like, well, that is just so cool. Yeah. And, so, and I'm like, okay, um, that's interesting and, and kind of cool. And uh, Oceana, uh, Richard Bailey is uh, Oceana's dad. And um, my stepdaughter. And uh, so, but then I, after the, after the, wedding, you know, being a pastor, after the wedding, I moved in to the, to the new house, which was Julia's, Julia's house. I left my house in West Side, and then I moved into Julia's house, because Oceana was there, we didn't want to make Oceana move, and plus it's a very nice house if you've ever been there, and then I'm really, oh, this is Richard Bailey's house originally. Like uh, Richard Bailey, is a, there's a library named after Richard Bailey in the WCC campus because he was a trustee at the Washtenaw Community College and he had a name chair at the University of Michigan. He was an esteemed uh, professor of English and, you know, now I find myself in Richard's house. You know, and you know, we did all certain things to try to equalize it and take all the pictures off the wall and then put some of my pictures and some of Julia's pictures. But Julia's art was like, a lot of it was from Richard Bailey and he knew some really good artists. He had some awesome art, you know, like there's one place in the house that had like a stained glass window that one of his artist friends made to, for, the, for Julia and Richard's um, wedding day. And it's like stained glass. It's in the music room there by the thing. And I'm like, well, well uh, okay. And so I got Nancy made a little uh, concrete thing that you see in gardens. And it was like, Ken, Nancy, July 11th, 1970. And I put that under the stained glass window. You know, and I'm like, for, for a while there, I realized I'm feeling like, I'm feeling like under the shadow of Richard Bailey. And I'm like, how do I measure up to Richard Bailey? And, you, and people would come over and, well, this is a nice house. And then Julie would say, yeah, Richard and I got this. And then we bought this extra piece of land and I don't own the house but I, it's my home now and it's like I realize I'm feeling like I'm almost in a like a rivalry with this amazing person Richard Bailey who's Oceana my stepdaughter's dad a beloved dad this is not good so I'm in, th in, a, in a counseling session and, and I'm getting cognitive behavioral therapy and one of the techniques is they try to stimulate both sides of your brain by going like this in front of you or tapping like 
your leg like this, so you uh, left and right, and you stimulate like both sides of the brain simultaneously, and sometimes your brain will make connections that you won't otherwise do. And we were actually dealing with some other issue that I needed cognitive behavioral therapy with. And the woman tried this EMR, EMI, EMI, EMER. EMDR, tried this EMDR on me, and it's like, okay. And then she says, now, close your eyes, and now, like, what comes to your mind? And I'm like, oh, it's not about this other thing at all. It's about this thing with Richard Bailey. Like, I feel like I'm an intruder in his home, and it almost feels like I'm in a kind of a rivalry with it. And she said, okay, we'll go with that, and why don't you just listen and... Maybe Richard Bailey would say something to you. And so, <laughs> this is in a counseling session. I'm closing my eyes. I'm rolling with it. And then I just clear the bell. I get this feeling like, actually, Richard Bailey is like, he's happy that, you know, I married Julia and that she's not alone. And it was, it was a bummer for him to leave Oceana as young as she was. And he was happy that, you know, he'd like kind of do your best, you know, kind of thing. And it was like, we weren't in rivalry. It's like we were, we were friends. We were on the same page. And it's it just like a creative space opened up and it just helped me so much. And I, I, never would have, uh, I never would have imagined that in a thousand years. So funny how that works. Okay, that's that. My, the end of my story and the end of my sermon. And I think what I want to do for our meditation time is sing a song again. Do you think that's all right? We have time? The song we sang before on the Holy Spirit. Emily, in our Solace Jesus thing, gave us a little history of the Pentecostal movement. I learned stuff I never knew, and it was really inspiring. And I noticed our song was about the Holy Spirit. I used to have a little problem with some of the lyric, but I've learned how to interpret it. Strip me back. It's on your first page there. Strip me back of all my pride, my possessions, till all I want and all I seek is your presence. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. It's a material world. God created all this world. You know, it's not like just Jesus only, but we don't eat and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's stripped me back of all my pride. Pride is that thing that we want to be in the higher position, right? We want to be recognized in the higher position. It's a big rivalry thing. Possessions. I mean, not material things, but possessions. Possession means mine. This is mine. I have more than you and all that kind of stuff. And then the song goes into what? It's like an invocation of the Holy Spirit. You know, come and fill this place with your mercy and grace. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. So for our meditation time, what I'd like us to do is stand up, sing this song again. You can go ahead and stand up now. But sing it with intention Knowing that what we're doing is we are inviting, we're invoking explicitly together the Holy Spirit, like the creative power that got things started to come down into our world and into our experience and into our hearts and into whatever stories that we're in the middle of living and then communion after that. So like, sing it really good, like you're belted out.
Bye.